Well, you might not be surprised uh, to learn that a recent Gallup study shows that overall trust in the American federal government is the lowest it's been in decades. It's been on a steady decline over the last 20 years, but uh, the, the rate at which it has fallen in the last five to six years is, is pretty astounding. All over the place, the data seems to point to the fact that Americans are growing increasingly distrustful of their leaders. But it's not just our political leaders. If you spend 20 minutes or so on social media, you might not want to do that, but if you do, <laughs> you'll notice that Americans are suspicious of really leaders of any kind. Anyone who puts themselves forward as an authority or who speaks with authority has some kind of detractor out there. But what's more disconcerting, I think, isn't simply that we seem to be growing distrustful of our leaders, but that we seem to be willing to display outright disgust for them. Again, scan the rhetoric online and in the media and you'll see that people aren't simply expressing disagreements, but hatred. Take, for instance, an article written for Psychology Today back in October of 2020, titled, and I quote, Is it wrong to wish Donald Trump ill? Are we really obliged to wish him well? In the article, Dr. David Barish, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Washington, gets straight to the point. Quote, now that Donald Trump has contracted COVID-19, electrons are aflutter with pious proclamations wishing him a full and speedy recovery. But at the risk of being politically incorrect, I'm going to dissent. I do not wish him well. Barish goes on to ask a rather straightforward, if not shocking, question about the potential of the president, former president to take a turn for the worse. Am I not allowed to imagine that his suffering could be a suitable comeuppance? Friends, regardless of where you stand politically, I hope you can rec recognize that Barash's sentiments are a justified kind of ill will that is just downright shocking. What are we to make of all this? I mean, how are we to make sense out of sentiments like this? What should our attitude be towards those that God has put in authority over us? After all, we recognize as we read the scriptures that authority is a good gift from God. And we can't get around the fact that it's clear from the scriptures that the good of God's people is tied to the good of their leaders. So when we consider all this and we think about those that God has put in authority over us, whether it's our boss, our parents, politicians, pastors, and most importantly, Christ, our King, we should ask, what should the posture of our hearts be towards our leaders? Well, as we examine our text this morning, I think that we're going to see that when it comes to this issue of authority, God has called those of us who are followers of Christ to take up a posture towards authority that is anything but what we heard a few moments ago. So if you'll go ahead, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 20. I'm going to read the text, and you can follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one uh, there in the red pewback uh, in front of you. you. You'll see there's a Bible there in Psalm 20. You can find that on page 456. Psalm 20, 
and read along with me. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now we don't have much in the way of context for this psalm. Uh, This is a, a typical psalm in some sense, Not all the psalms tell us when they were written or or why they were written. Uh, In this case, really all we have to go on is that we know that David was was likely the author of this psalm. We see that in the superscript, that it is a psalm of David. Nevertheless, the content of the psalm does seem to tell us something about the nature uh, of the text and and how it was probably used. From what we can tell, it's it's possible that this psalm was used as a kind of pre-battle benediction, something that would have been spoken by the people of God on behalf of their king as he entered into battle. And we can see this quite clearly if we step back and we consider the way the the psalm itself is structured. It seems to break into three different parts. We have verses 1 through 5 that serve as a series of benedictions spoken of the king. And then in verses 6 through 8, we have what seems to be a sort of two-part response to these benedictions taking the form of a declaration of trust expressed by the king and the people together. And then finally, the psalm ends with a kind of summary refrain that includes one brief prayer and a final benediction. And when we take these three movements together, benediction, trust, and prayer, this psalm really paints a picture for us of what it means for the people of God to honor God through their support of the king. As we read through and examine this text this morning, I think this psalm is going to do something very similar for us. Because I think as we read these words, we're going to see something of of a framework for how we're to posture our own hearts when it comes to the authority that God has placed over us. Whether that's, again, Christ, our King, all the way down to, to our bosses or even our political leaders. In short, Psalm 20 is going to show us that God's people honor their leaders by seeking their good in God. And I think that's really the main idea or the main theme that we see running throughout this psalm, that God's people honor their leaders by seeking their good in God. And that's significant because, as I said before, our good is tied into the good of our leaders And we see this idea demonstrated here in those three movements. There's really three clear ways that this psalm instructs us on how it is we're to seek the good of our leaders. God's people are to seek the good of their leaders first by speaking good for them. 
And then by trusting God for their good. And then finally for praying for their good in God. And those three ideas are are really going to serve as the, the three main points for us this morning as we walk through the text and consider what does it mean for us to seek the good of our leaders. So point number one, speaking for their good. What does it mean for us to speak for the good of our leaders? Well, again, consider there there with me verses one through five. If you're anything like me, you might be tempted as you read these verses to assume that what we have here is basically just a series of prayers. But upon further inspection, I think if we notice there's a few things here that, that kind of push that assumption aside. First, notice who these statements are actually directed towards. It's not God, but the king. Given the larger context of the psalm, we know that the you in view here is the king. Second, notice the way each of these statements are framed. May the Lord answer. May he send you help. May he remember. May he grant you. May we shout for joy. May the Lord fulfill. You get that that refrain over and over and over again. May, 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 may. What am I getting at? Well, what's going on here? Well, if you think about it for a moment, you realize these aren't really prayers as much as they are benedictions. And immediately you might think, okay, so what? What's the difference? Why does that matter? Aren't those the same things? I mean, they want God to do something for the king, right? We pray when we want God to do something. Who cares if we call it a prayer or a benediction? What difference does it make? Well, I think it does make a difference. I mean, there's a reason why we've come to use those terms to describe different kinds of speech in God's word. The simple answer is that the Bible does give us a clear pattern for distinguishing between them. All throughout Scripture, we see example after example of the people of God not just praying for others, but speaking words of expected blessing to them. The classic example of this is found in number 6, 22 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And we see the same kind of thing repeated dozens and dozens and dozens of times throughout the Bible, so much so that you probably don't even notice it. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. That was what was happening with me when I first started to read this text. But that's exactly what we have here, a series of benedictions or good words spoken by the people in expectation and hope for the good of the king. These aren't simply prayers. These are, these are hopes that the people are communicating to encourage the king. And that's the point of a benediction, to bless those that we speak these words to, to encourage them in hopeful expectation for their good according to the promises and the purposes of God. That's what makes such benedictions more than just well-wishing. In some sense, you know, you could think of if I, if I was talking to you on the phone and, and you, you said, well, I've got a, a big thing coming up at work and I'm really worried about it. And, and right before I hung up, I said, well, I hope everything goes well. 
Well, it's almost a benediction. I'm wishing you well. I'm hoping it goes well. And that's encouraging, right? But there's something in Scripture that, that, that is unique about these, these words, these, these encouragements. So much so that, again, I, just, I would challenge you and encourage you, open up the Bible, you'll find they're everywhere. And, and there's something just that, that the Lord has, has determined that, that this idea that we would speak good to one another, not just say nice things to each other, but expect God to do good for others and to speak that and is an encouraging word. Oftentimes, when we see this idea of benediction, it is tied in to the idea of blessing, or it's even called a blessing. And we tend to think of blessing as a, as a state of being or or doing something nice for somebody, or giving them something good. But the Bible almost more often than not attributes blessing someone to speaking these kinds of words to them. So these benedictions are not simply well wishes. They're expectations of hope rooted in the promises and will of God. And that's what we have here. But notice the common theme. What, what are the people hoping for? Consider each of these statements. May the Lord answer you, the king. May the name of God protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, give you support. Remember your offerings. Regard with favor your offerings. May he grant your heart's desire, fulfill your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The, longing, the longings and hopes here for the good of the king are ultimately tied to his relationship with God. That's why we, we look at this, and I think instinctually we think, we're, is this a prayer? Because God is inextricably tied to the king's good. For the people to hope for and to speak good to the king and for the king is for the people to wish and to speak good for the king in God. Their hopes for their good and for the king's good ultimately lie in God's favor towards him. You know, if we could sum all of these expectations and these hopes up, it would simply be this. They hope and they speak in hope that God would be for the king. But you see, these longings and these hopes that are expressed through these benedictions, they weren't meant to stop with David. Now, David wrote these words not just to make himself feel good, but because he knew that there was a true and better king coming, a king who would be blessed and favored by God in the highest way possible. These good words are meant to find their ultimate fulfillment, not in David and his future, but in Christ. And if it was good and right for the people of God to speak such blessings over David, how much more is it good and right for the people of God to bless David's greater, greater son? And yet, Though Christ should have received such honor, though he should have been praised and received benediction beyond what David received, instead he was despised. He was slandered and rejected as king. His people did not regard him favorably. They didn't seek his good or speak good of him. Instead of blessing him, they mocked him. Instead of hoping for his deliverance, they plotted his murder. 
But friends, what an incredible thing it is that even though Christ received the malediction of his people, nevertheless, God was for him. Everything we see here expressed in verses 1 through 5 came true in Christ, despite the unwillingness of his people to speak these words of him. God was for him. The Father answered him and protected him. He sent him help. He was pleased with Christ's offering, even unto death. And he not only delivered him, but gave him victory over sin and death, so that we, we who do not deserve to celebrate with him, will be able to celebrate with him for all eternity to the praise and honor and glory of our King. And God has raised him up, and now he has received all the praise and honor that he is due. He is the King, eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only God to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a benediction. He is the one who receives the praise of thousands upon thousands of angels who cry out day and night, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And he is the one who will one day receive the benediction of the entire earth as all creation cries out, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Recognize if, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. Recognize that though you have not sought the good of this king, nevertheless, your good can be found in him. Recognize that God has raised him up for your good and for your salvation. That any good word that God might speak of you can only come through Christ. Recognize that God has brought you here this morning to turn your allegiance to this king. Let me implore you, do not rebel against this king, but throw yourself upon him and upon his mercy do not rebel. Rejoice in him. Hope in him. He is your only hope of good in God. Apart from him, we have no hope of good, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. But we can rest assured that if we trust in him, God will be for us. So let me see he is for our king. So let me implore you, trust in him. What does all this mean, though, for those of us who have turned our allegiance to King Jesus? If this psalm shows us the importance of speaking the good of our for our leaders, then what does it mean to speak the good of Christ? We've considered some of this already, but, but consider Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1.17. To the King of ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, is there any question in, in Paul's mind that Christ might not receive honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. No. Nevertheless, Paul blesses Christ with these words. And we see things like this all throughout the New Testament. And again, oftentimes we don't notice it because to bless Christ, or to speak a good word of Christ, well, oftentimes we just see that as a, a praise. And in some sense, that's true. They're synonymous when we're talking about God to offer up a benediction to Christ is to praise him. 
But that said, let me encourage us all to do exactly that. I think this text shows us that our king deserves our praise, deserves our benedictions. He deserves our good words. We are called to speak for his praise and his honor and glory. So we must not shy away from speaking of Jesus and speaking good of Jesus to each other, to our neighbors, to our family, to anyone who will listen, but especially to Jesus. Don't be afraid when you pray to praise Jesus in the way that you see in the scriptures. Glorify him when you pray. Don't just ask him for things, but praise him. And we had a prayer of praise earlier, and it models this this kind of attitude of, of offering up these good words for who God is and what he deserves. I would encourage you, when you are alone with God, don't simply ask him for things, but praise him and speak good of him. But if we're called to offer up such words to Christ, and Israel was called to speak these kinds of words to their king, what does it look like for us to speak good of our earthly leaders? And again, the apostles taught us what this looks like. Throughout the New Testament, we're called to honor all authorities, whether it's kings or pagan emperors, employers or parents, and especially pastors and elders. What would it look like for us to speak the good of these leaders and to speak for their good? I mean, consider what we heard earlier. What does it look like to speak good of those who are in power politically, even if we disagree with them? Do the way, is the way that we speak about those who are in power, does it reflect a kind of goodwill towards them? Do we earnestly desire their good in God, and do we speak that? We can disagree with, with policies, and God's word makes it clear that we must be for their good in Christ. We must not wish them ill, but we must hope that they find favor with our God. But what about spiritual leaders, pastors, and elders? Do we speak well of them? Do we speak in such a way that encourages them and shows them that we're for their good? Or do we gossip? Do we make assumptions? Do we speak ill? Or do we only speak well to flatter or to receive something? No, the scripture would call us to be for their good to encourage them, to tell them that we're for their good, not as a way of flattering them, but to show them our genuine love for them. So I ask you, friends, do you do that? Do you root for your leaders? Do you root for your pastors and your elders? Do you encourage them with your speech and tell them, hey, I'm for you. May God be good to you, pastor. Do you speak these good words? I know it might seem weird to try to do something like that. Maybe just start off at the text or or an email or a letter. But I would encourage you, God's word makes it clear, we should speak to encourage them for their good. Whatever the case, this passage shows us that to be for the good of our leaders means to speak blessings to them and for them. But we not only seek their good through the way that we speak 
but in what we trust in. And that brings us to our, our next point. The benedictions of 1 through 5 are spoken by the people. And as we turn to verse 6, the psalm seems to shift in a pretty dramatic way. We see what appears to be a kind of response by a single individual to these benedictions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. There's some debate about the identity of this speaker here, but I think the most compelling suggestion is this is a response by the king himself to the benedictions spoken in verses 1 through 5. The people have offered up their hopes to the king, and now he's moved with confident assurance that God will certainly be for him. The people have expressed their hope that God would be for the king, and now the king can confidently declare that what the people have hoped for will certainly come true. He will surely save his anointed and answer him from his holy heaven. And we see that that confidence in, that is spoken by the king, it is then echoed by the whole congregation there in verses 7 through 8. And the people join the king in this declaration of trust in God. And these verses, both king, the king and the people, express clearly what is implied in verses 1 through 5. Namely, that God alone is their only hope of good. All those who trust in earthly might, even in the might of the king, will be disappointed. But those who trust in the name of the Lord will be saved. In short, to be for the good of their king was to trust that only God and God alone would act for their good through the good of their king. And this is a crucial turning point in the psalm because without it, we might be tempted to think that the benedictions might not come true. That there's some doubt about whether or not the things that people hope for would actually come to pass. But verses 6 through 8 show us in no uncertain terms that these hopes are not in doubt because they rest not in the ability of the king or the people, but in the power and purposes and promises of God. Even though those hopes have yet to be fulfilled, they rest confident that God will be for the king because of who God is and what he is capable of. And if the people of Israel could have such confidence for their king, how much more so can we rest confident that God has and will continue to act for the good of our king? Like David and the people in this psalm, we can look with full assurance upon our king and know that our God is for him. But unlike David and the people of this psalm, this isn't just a, a confident hope, but a sure reality for us. We've, we've seen it. We know it. God has demonstrated clearly his power and his pleasure in our king. How? By raising him up from the dead and seating him at the right hand of his throne. And since our king has been so highly exalted, brothers and sisters, we have every reason to be confident that God will be for our king and for us. Recognize the words of this psalm point to the very hope of the gospel itself. What do we trust in? We don't trust in the things of this world, but that God himself has saved us, not according to anything that we have done, but by his might and by his strength and through his pleasure and power demonstrated through our king. Surely this, this kind of confidence should drastically change the way we approach the world. 
that the people of Israel could say that they would not trust in chariots and horses, but in the name of their God, then how foolish is it for us to trust in wisdom, earthly wisdom and power. But sadly, that's so often what we're prone to do. Whether it's a certain party, political party, a policy, a relationship, uh, an investment, you name it. All of us are tempted to trust in the false hopes that are offered in this world. But the psalm reminds us that any hope we have for good rests in God and God alone. God will accomplish his purposes in our lives, and he will do it in his way, in his timing, and for his glory. And we will get none of the credit. And that's good news. And that's no less true when it comes, than when it comes to the, the people that God has put in authority over us in our lives. Any hope that we have for our good that is tied to the good of our leaders rests not in their abilities or in their strength or in their charisma, but in God. Which means if you genuinely love your leaders and you are genuinely for their good, then you won't rest your hope in them, but you'll rest your hope in God. I mean, how often do we lay burdens on our leaders, expecting them to be and to do for us what only God and God alone can do? How often do we fail to love our leaders by expecting things from us that they cannot give us? Friends, we will serve our leaders well by recognizing their limitations exercising patience and understanding towards them. Leaders are a good gift from God, but we rob ourselves of that gift when we make them ultimate. Friends, Jesus, King Jesus, and our Father, those are the only ones we can look to, to trust. We cannot look to the leaders that God has given us ultimately for our hope. We honor those leaders best when we keep our trust fixed on God and not on them. But there's one more thing that this psalm shows us about the way that we're called to honor our leaders. Because if we want to seek their good, we'll not only speak for their good and trust God for their good, but we'll pray for their good. And that brings us to the last point. With all that we've seen so far, it's important to recognize this psalm closes with a really simple and yet significant prayer. In verse 9, O God, save the king. O Lord, save the king. The hopes expressed in verses 1 through 5 have given way to a declaration of trust in verses 6 through 8. And that trust and confidence has moved the people to pray on behalf of the king. And that's significant because we might be tempted to think that, that their confidence would make them lazy or, or apathetic. We might wonder, well, if they're sure God's going to act, why pray? If they're confident, what good does praying do? And it's crucial that we grasp this because the reality is that confidence in God's power and purposes, it doesn't negate the need for prayer. It is the very foundation for prayer. It is the reason that we're moved to pray. As one pastor has said, Christians don't believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the power of God, and so we pray. And I think that's exactly what we see here. The people are praying for the king because they trust in the power of God. They're asking God to act precisely because they are confident that he can and will act for the good of the king. They're not merely hoping and trusting 
No, they're crying out in one simple but all-encompassing prayer, O Lord, save the king. And by this whole thought, the whole train of their desire for the king is brought to its end. Their speech has led them to trust. Their trust has now led them to pray. And these prayers are the highest and clearest expression of their trust in God and their goodwill towards the king. When we pray for the good of our leaders, we are seeking their good. And Consider the surprising way that we see this text once again played out in the life of Christ. I mean, if any king deserved the prayers and supplications of his people, it was Christ. And yet, Christ's own disciples failed to watch and pray with him for a single hour. And Jesus, kneeling alone in the garden, praying by himself, though he deserved the prayers and supplications of his people in that moment, he had none. And though his people were silent, he was still heard by his God. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Friends, we don't have to ask God to save our king. He has already done it. And that is good news. God has saved our king. And that is good news for us because that means that our king now lives so that we not pray for him, but he prays for us. As the author of Hebrews says, he ever lives to intercede for us. What a comforting and humbling reality this should be for us. That Christ our King has fulfilled the hopes and expectations and prayers of this text. And he did it all as one who was despised, disgusted, and rejected. He took the scorn that we deserve while we failed to give him the honor that he deserved. And yet, he has not only saved us, but he prays for us every single moment of every day. What a comfort to know we don't have to pray for our king because he prays for us. It's incredible. And though we don't pray for our king, this passage does show us prayer is essential to seeking the good of our leaders. Which leads me with really one really simple exhortation, and I bet you can guess what it is. Friends, pray for your leaders. It might sound simple, but it is crucial. They need it, and God has called you to do it. If we want to genuinely seek the good of our leaders, we must pray for them. A genuine posture of prayer towards our leaders is a sure sign that we love them, that we have a genuine concern for them. You can't genuinely and earnestly pray for the good of someone else while feeling contempt for them. It's not possible. You can't genuinely and earnestly pray for the good of someone unless you really do want them to do well. When we pray for our leaders, we are asking God in the privacy of our own soul to do good to them. And in so much as we are genuinely moved to pray for them, we can be sure that our heart is genuinely affected by the Spirit of God in love for them. And let me just stop here and make 
some really particular exhortations. First, I want to encourage you to pray specifically over the next few weeks and months for Trey as he begins his work at at OBC. Even this very day, his new role as lead pastor there at Ozark Baptist, let me encourage you to seek his good by praying for him and for the saints of OBC regularly. Keep him on your heart and your mind in this season and pray for him continually that God may be with him and for him. Let me encourage you to do that and to seek his good. I know he will be greatly helped and encouraged by your prayers. And don't just pray for him, but maybe speak a word of encouragement to him. Send him a text or an email telling him, I hope that God will be with you in this season, Trey. Second, pray for your elders. Pray for Nick Roark as you continue to consider his nomination. Pray the, the potential for him as the potential of serving as an associate pastor in this, this body is, is up for your decision. Pray that God would be with him, that, that he would watch his life and doctrine closely, that the Lord would prepare and strengthen him for the potential of serving this body. And then finally, let me, let me selfishly ask you to pray for me. Pray for me as I am potentially sent out to serve the saints of generations. Pray that I would trust in the goodness of God alone. Pray that God would be with me and for me. Pray that he would give me wisdom and the love needed to serve these people. Pray that I would teach with all diligence and patience. But above all, pray that the Lord and the Lord alone would be my help. Let me encourage you to pray these prayers, not just for me or Nick or Trey, but for your current elders as well. Pray that God would be for them. Take time out of your day to pray for them. Pray that he would hear them and that he would fulfill every resolve for the good of this congregation that they have. And as you pray for all of these things and more, I want you to be encouraged by the final words of this psalm. Because we see here at the end of verse 9, as the psalm closes, that as the people of God move from petition back to benediction, they cry out in one voice, may he answer us when we call. You see, their hope for good for the king and their trust in God and their prayers for the king finally rested in their confident hope that God would hear them when they called for help. And friends, we too can have this same kind of confidence that God hears us when we pray for him. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 14 through 15, this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Friends, we can be confident that if we seek the good of our leaders according to the will of our God, he will not only hear us, but give us the requests that we have asked. And that's the question for us. Will we seek the good of our leaders? And will we honor them with our speech and our trust and our prayers? May it be so for us, 
Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we praise you because you are our only good. We praise you that, Father, even when we don't recognize you as our only good, you are still our only good. That you keep us, that you hold us by your right hand, that you drag us along, sometimes kicking and screaming, but nevertheless, God, that you are for us. God, we praise you that that we can rest confident that our good is secure in Christ. Father, I pray that when we are tempted to doubt, when we are tempted to fear, that you would encourage us to look to Christ and to be reminded that you have saved our King. We ask this in his name. Amen.